Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello, welcome to Operation Silver Screen. This cinema-related operation has been created to clear our desks from stacks of open cases. What are these cases? Well, even being the film lovers that we are, Bright and I have a huge backlog of must-see films that we still need to experience. So each week we'll tackle a film that either one of us, or both of us, still need to see. We'll then provide a debrief of our week's mission, given our outlook on the film's popularity and its significance, as well as providing our opinion on whether or not it's worth seeing and other fun insights. So Bryant, what was our mission this week? Yes, so our mission this week is based on Cronenberg's new movie coming out soon uh, called Crimes of the Future, which is not a remake of one of his older films. I'm not sure yet why he chose the same title, but that movie is coming out June 10th, 2022. And this is Cronenberg going back to what he is best known for being the biological and body horror. So in honor of that, our assignment this week was to watch and analyze Videodrome, which is an, an early example of what Cronenberg does best. Now, I must ask Caitlin first before we start, are your hallucinations still going? Because uh, I feel like mine are subsiding, but honestly, I was whipping my TV before this, and this slit in my stomach is actually quite convenient. Uh, how do you know if this isn't a hallucination right now? Honestly, I'm just going with it at this point. No, no sense fighting it. Valid, that's true. <laughs> Might as well just, just go with the flow. <laughs> exactly. Just go with, the, go with the flow, make sure you eat, take a cold shower, and ride it out. So before we go into discussing this film, I just want to go ahead and let you guys know that this is going to be the declassified portion of our podcast. So don't worry if you have not seen the film yet, if you have not had the courage to watch Videodrome, no worries. We're not going to be spoiling anything until the second portion of our show, which we will go ahead and give you a warning for that. So Caitlin, this is a movie in which I have seen and you have not. This is, a, of course, a must-see film, but why have you not seen this film yet? Honestly, I don't really have a reason at all. I think it's been on my to-watch list for a while. But really, my knowledge of Cronenberg... Well, not my knowledge of him, but my... uh, I haven't really seen too many of his films. I've seen a couple. I've seen Existence and Map to the Stars, I want to say the other one was. And I wasn't too big of a fan of those films, but I do... I did still have an interest in Cronenberg and seeing some of his more classic films. So... I was actually excited to watch this one. Yes, an existence you actually just watched recently because of my recommendation. And Map to the Stars is Cronenberg's drama film. Uh, He was doing a couple dramas for a while. He's just now going back to his kind of his sci-fi and horror roots that he has uh, recently, which is why this is kind of a a a big thing right now. This is why it's popular. This is why in the Cannes Festival people are talking about this. This is why people have been talking about this for. A while now because Cronenberg's known for this, but he stepped away for a while. And Existence is another sci-fi film, and again, it has that biological horror in it. Has a lot of the very creative props and technology, uh, fictional technology that he has in the film that is unlike anything you'll see again. And then also, I just want to make mention that the reason I recommended Existence is because you asked me for a movie suggestion and it was like one of the most wild movie suggestions and while you didn't like the movie i still i still found a fitting movie 
You did. It wasn't a bad suggestion at all. Let me let me say that. It, it definitely fit what I was looking for. Although I don't remember exactly what it was that I was looking for at the time. But it was a very, very specific mood I was in. And it definitely fit into that mood. But I can see where existence um, maybe had some flaws in it that this film, maybe it did better. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. We'll have to see. And see, we shall. Now, like we said, the movie is a must-see. Uh, you can find it in a lot of must-see lists. You can find it in a lot of best of horror lists. And that's why we went ahead and chose chose this movie in particular. Actually, we had two choices. It was either Videodrome or The Fly. Fly is probably his most mainstream and successful one. Videodrome is kind of his 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 earliest of showing what what he does. And how did the critics perceive this? Well, this has a 79% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes, making it certified fresh with an 80% audience rating. It also has a 7.2 IMDb rating. And like I say, you can find it in a lot of best of horrorless and must-watch movies. However, this did not do well in the box office. This had a $6 million budget with only a $2 million outcome. So this movie is loved, it's respected, but unfortunately nobody showed up during the time of this movie. And honestly, I really can't blame them. This is an extremely hard movie to to give out uh, and market to the general audience, to that mainstream. Yeah, I know Cronenberg has said that it should have been handled as an art film instead of going out to more conventional audiences, just the way that the distribution and marketing for that uh, should have been a little bit different. So, But responses really did vary for this film. It varied from repulsion to enthusiasm, so you know we have both ends of the spectrum. I know John Carpenter, after seeing the film, said that Cronenberg was the only real artist in the horror genre. But meanwhile, Roger Ebert was calling it one of the least entertaining films ever made, so there really is a varied response there. Yes, and it's probably with all of his films. Actually, recently, uh, they premiered Crimes of the Future at the Cannes Festival for 2022, in which there were actually walkouts during the film. People got up and left the theater because they couldn't, they no longer wanted to watch what was on screen or they just couldn't handle it. However, it still received a seven minute standing ovation at the end of the film. So you kind of go, again, you have that, it goes both ways. So the reason they actually marketed this for the mainstream, though, is because of the success of Scanners. Scanners did extremely well, and that's another movie that we're going to watch one day down the road. But that movie did much better than anybody had expected it. So they went ahead and said, hey, Cronenberg, you want to make another movie? Hey, here's double the amount that was given to you before. Scanners was made on a $3 million budget, and this was made on a $6 million budget. Now, you said it, Cronenberg mentioned that this film should have been marketed to a smaller audience, to the art crowd. However, that probably would have been a reduced budget, and this movie already hit the budget line actually a lot of things that he wanted to do for this movie and we'll talk about it more later he was unable to do for this film because of the budget so it's kind of a double-edged sword but i mean the movie was made and he got to do what he wanted to do and john carpenter called him the true horror artist that really does fit cronenberg because cronenberg was given the option to make scanners 2 but he didn't want to make scanners 2 he didn't want to make a sequel and this being the 80s they loved making sequels to horror films but he said no I don't want to make that. What I want to make is this right here. I want to make Videodrome. I have a vision and a message that I want to get out to the world. And they said, all right, cool. We'll go ahead and we'll work with that. Anything else you were able to find for what the critics thought or the reason why we uh, picked this movie? 
Yeah, I will say it's often regarded as a cult classic because it didn't have that quite uh, good critic or not that good box office reception in the beginning. Uh, it's often cited as Cronenberg's best and leading example in body horror. It's noted as 89th most essential film in the history by the Toronto International Film Festival, so it's still in the top 100 there. And the Criterion did release it, or the DVD release, in August 2004 as well. Yeah, and I'll say that not only is this his most exemplary in body horror, but that balance, that body horror and using it to push a message in his film as well. I feel like body horror is something that I didn't really start looking really into and looking for in films until more recently, maybe since last year or so. I will say that this is also the first film that was distributed by a Hollywood studio of Cronenberg's film by MCA Universal. Oh, nice. Who released Scanners then? Do you know? I don't know. I'm guessing some Canadian distributor. I don't really know. I honestly don't know. Uh, Canadian would, yes. (laughs) And we mentioned this word a lot, body horror. And do you, do you want to take it what body horror is? Uh, you can go ahead. So body horror is basically kind of the manipulation and the transformation of the human body itself. Whether usually it's very grotesque. Usually it's grotesque, but sometimes it can just be minimal. Uh, Sometimes, you know, it can just be a rash that becomes too much. And other times it can become like just the body tearing itself from the inside out. Uh, There's just a lot of great examples for this. The Thing is probably one of the the biggest in body horror that you you can see. Uh, Also, just the, uh, and we'll be talking about this again, werewolves are during that transformation that can be seen as body horror. Again, that body going through a transformation. Uh, Another big one, which is actually uh, mentioned before, which is John Carpenter's probably most popular film, The Fly. The Fly, I feel like, is a concept that a lot of people are familiar with. It's actually being used in parody a lot in child programs to adult programs in which a man teleports himself from one place to the other, but a fly goes into the teleportation machine and their genes split and then from that point forward, he starts to slowly transform into this creature. So during that whole time, you have a lot of examples of body horror going on. Uh, body horror can also be referred to as biological horror. Biological horror being just the, the the horror of life. And again, that's I'm trying to think of the word, not manipulation, but the body. Um, it's another M word. I can't think of it. Metamorphosis. Yeah, like a metamorphosis. I was thinking it's very Kafka-esque, the fly. And also, you did say that was John Carpenter's most popular film. I God think dang it. Cronenberg. <laughs> Cronenberg. And it's because I was talking about The Thing, and a lot of people actually mix that up with John Carpenter's The Thing with David Cronenberg because that body horror is so similar. But that's because mm-hmm. actually the special effects, uh, the practical effects creators for The Thing uh, was the same creator for a lot of Cronenberg's films. So there's a bit of a similarity there. Actually, I'm not sure a lot of his films, but at least one of his films from what I was reading with the John Carpenter. And I'm glad you said transformation because I think that a lot of times there's an aversion to films of a lot of body horror. And um, and I can see why. It is very gory. It can be very disturbing. But I do think that oftentimes body horror is used to to show an, a physical, tangible representation of uh, a more 
internal transformation at times. Yes, and also it's a human centered. It's a human centered horror. Uh, that's one. I was actually watching a little bit of Cronenberg's documentary, uh, "Living uh, the Flesh" or the the New Flesh, which is flesh is a actually a trademark of his. It's his director's signature. It becomes popular in this film, but it's mentioned again in his other films. Another thing that he talked about during the documentary that I found interesting that goes into the body horror is that the disease is inevitable. And I believe they actually mentioned disease in this film. And it's kind of that, that horror we have during if someone is to contract a disease, you know, that slow, that slow buildup, that slow tearing within the body, that just that inevitable tragedy. Of course, you know, modern medicine is a lot better. Not all diseases are going to end up like that. It's not like the, you know, the 19th century, if you get a disease, yes, this is what's probably going to happen. Uh, but it's just that kind of that inevitable, that inevitable tragedy. We see it a lot in films. Once they start going through that transformation, we know it's just a downhill slope from there. And hopefully they can recover from it, but not always. Another good example of, well, actually, I'll talk about it during the, the influence. I'll save that one. But yeah, that's a uh, body horror, I would say, is probably the most inaccessible horror as well. It kind of... I don't know, it, it can sometimes, I think, go too far for people, whether it's because people are more sensitive to body horror or people just get a little too crazy with it. I'll say uh, one movie that you disliked that did have some interesting body horror in it from the past year was Candyman. I know you have your issues with it, but it did have some body horror in there as well and his transformation as a character. Yes, actually, I was thinking about Candyman when I mentioned The Rash like from a rash on your hand, he his basically his skin started to started to peel as well. Uh, so that's actually what I was kind of thinking of, but I couldn't really think of what was actually going on with his hand aside from it just turning into a hook or whatever. Yeah, and there was a lot of that, like the the holy flesh, like that, like if you have a is it tryptophobia or something that it's yes. called. Um, yeah, it definitely showed a lot of that in his flesh. So. You can see that as well as part of that body horror. And sometimes it can be very simple and it's still, it's still, you know, it can still get under your skin, uh, play on words, but the movie Raw, uh, Raw has some body horror in it. And honestly, it's just because of this rash that starts going on with her and starts just spreading throughout her body. But it's just a rash. Like we've seen that before, but just, I don't know, you can take something simple and just the way that you play with the music and the sound and the look of it and make it something truly horrifying. I'm like here scratching my arm thinking about that rash. <laughs> that, that rash was that rash was brutal. Again, with the sound, the sound was the, the part that got me. Now, this film, this film centers on a character named Max, uh, who's played by James Woods, who we don't see too often. I don't think, I don't know the last time we saw James Woods. Uh, most people know him as RoboCop, which is another film that we'll have to watch one day. I actually haven't seen that film but it's definitely a must-see film and but i feel like a lot of people know james woods though i think it's from family guy he had a couple episodes where he's a bit obsessive with peter griffin that was actually pretty funny but james Woods, he plays max a distributor of adult entertainment and home video market uh when he comes across a disgusting but enticing video uh an enticing piece of work in which someone is being tortured in in various ways and he believes at first that it's just they're just actors because no one would actually subject themselves to this so he finds himself obsessing 
over this. He thinks this is going to be the next big thing for movies. Like I say, he's a producer of adult entertainment, or not producer, a distributor of adult entertainment, and he's always looking for the next big thing, and he thinks this is going to be it. But his obsession takes him on this journey that eventually makes his way beyond the TV screen and into his head. Now, was it a home video market? It kind of seemed like it was like a television broadcast station, which, you know, we wouldn't think about those things being on television, but I thought that's kind of what made it a little bit more uh, sci-fi, surreal, I guess. Yes. So, yes, he was, sorry. Yes, his was a network television. I guess I was thinking video market because he was obtaining videotapes, but then he was playing it on screen for people who will watch the television show. And he comes across this disturbing set of videos through a satellite that picks up broadcast waves. Um, so it's kind of a mystery where these broadcast waves are being picked up, but he becomes intrigued by it. And I will say that this uh, this movie definitely probably has quite a bit of content warnings if you are looking uh, wanting to look this up or want to listen to our podcast. I mean, we're not going to go too explicit with it, but I will say that there's a lot of sexual content and gore or something. If that's something that you don't really want to hear about, just a, just a quick kind of content warning. What did you think of this film? Having watched it for the first time. It, it's a weird film to talk about because I feel like there is so much to talk about. I think conceptually, I like this film and we'll kind of go into what those concepts are and how it relates to the world around us because there's a lot of things in there that I really appreciate. I will say this isn't the type of film that I gravitate towards. Uh, a lot of the problems of art films is that at times they can be too artsy. I think sometimes that you lose the plot and you lose the point by trying to be too artsy. Sometimes I think it can come off as a little bit of a pseudo-intellectual. And I think that there are times when this breaches into that. And I think there's also times where it kind of drags. So it's not a perfect movie, but I do think that it's a movie that I continue to think about afterwards and and the more I looked into it and kind of did my own analysis of it, the more I did appreciate it. I think that it's a hard movie to like at first watch. It would be interesting going back and watch it again, but it's definitely a film that you kind of leave it thinking, what the hell did I just watch? (laughs) You said that this isn't the movie that you would gravitate towards, and I thought to myself, well, who would gravitate toward this film? And then I remember that this was actually my second time watching this. So (laughs) I guess certain people do gravitate towards this, because this was a film that I was curious about. This wasn't my first Cronenberg movie. This was my second, I believe. Uh, I know The Fly was my first, so I... Yeah, I was kind of interested. This is during the time when I was just looking for all types of film. And this was, like we said, the biological, the biological horror film or or one of these. Uh, but it is the bi- biological horror director. So I'll say while this movie is known to be insane and quite a trip, I think it hits a nice balance. Uh, and where that biological horror tells a story in which the me- message is still relevant today. I think the practical effects hold up really well. The creativity can be seen and appreciated in all the effects and just the designs and the props that they worked on. You said that you may like this more on a second time, and I can say from my experience, I enjoy this film more the second time. I was actually kind of confused the first time I watched it. I think I went in with a sort of expectation. Not sure what it was at the time, but I think that's what kind of threw me off because I was constantly trying to think of it as something else and not really seeing for what it was. I think uh, 
the movie can go a bit far sometimes. It's going to go a bit far for for certain audience. But I think it all still feels like it stays within the lines that it it draws and it, and the world that it sets up. It never feels like it goes outside of that, which it does set up us kind of a I forget the word for it. It's kind of a surreal world. It's not it's it's definitely fictionalized, even with the the set pieces and the places that they go. It's like, all right, this doesn't take place in our universe, and I like that. It was interesting. It reminds me of like Del Toro in a way, like a sci-fi way, kind of a, a larger than life. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely say that. I think part of a reason why I tend to avoid films like this is because I tend to. When you said you had an expectation, I definitely feel like I had an expectation going into this. I feel like I have an expectation going into Cronenberg films. Uh, Lynch is another director, but I would say I kind of go into the same expectation. That, you know, these are definitely directors that are are widely heralded. And I think sometimes uh, going into these films, I think I have a very high expectation. I expect this to be a very intelligent film and i'm not saying that this isn't an intelligent film but maybe not quite in the way that i was expecting if that makes sense i think so i i think i understand what you're saying i think this is an intelligent film and one thing that i like about it is that it's not trying to be too cryptic it's not trying to be too enigmatic with it it's the message is up front and the way that they explore it is still clever, even though it's letting you know what's going on. Yeah, for me, I think almost a little bit more crypticness. I don't think that's a word. But I wish it almost had a little bit of that more so in the plot. I think uh, the actual plot for me kind of, it, it lacks in certain areas. And I think sometimes it tried to explain a little bit too much. Um, and I think that was a fault of it for mine. But I do, like I said, I think conceptually I really like this film. And I like uh, the kind of mood and environment that he was trying to create with this. The plot is something that I don't want to say more on board with, but it's something that I followed more on the second time. And it's not because the plot is confusing. I think it's because I was overlooking the plot the first time that I watched it because of that expectation. I think my focus was in other places. And when I was watching this time, it actually... It was rather simple, the mm-hmm. plot. It, it can yeah, actually it be... There, there's, a conv- uh, in the, it's, there's a complex message going on, but it's not convoluted. It, it, it follows it well. It doesn't, again, it doesn't go completely off the rails at any point. You got to come back and try to remember what you saw before and, make, and put pieces together. Everything's together in a generally a straight line. It's simple, but I felt sometimes the plot, the actual plot itself, which we'll get into our, our spoiler section a little bit more into it, I think sometimes it felt a little bit cheesy and stereotypical to me. Are you talking about the twist or before then? Uh, but I'm not sure I know what twist you're talking about. The the <laughs> twist in where someone's ulterior motives are actually revealed. Yeah, I think that was mostly my issue. Yeah, that one actually, that's when I started, I remember I started kind of getting thrown off on the movie the first time I was watching. I was like, wait, what am I, what are we doing again? I was like, what, hold up, why is this person now? I'm like, what What are they actually doing? And then watching the second time, I'm like, oh, that's, okay, That that's what he's doing. That's, oh, that wasn't too bad. I got it. So I, I don't, honestly, I don't know what really changed. Again, I think it's that kind of that, that focus. I think I like, I was, I think I had my face too close to the screen. Kind of like when he does, when he's putting the face in that inflatable, in, in the breathing television. And I kind of just had to step back and look at it 
as a whole and not be tunnel vision in anything. When he motorboated the TV? Yes, when he motorboated the TV, which that, man, that uh, that effect is great. And just being able to pull that off, especially in 1983, with no special effects, that was probably their biggest effect. And I think they play it in the, yeah, they play a little bit of it in the trailer. And it's, it's rather interesting how they had to do that effect. And it, it took the whole effects team. Like, it took makeup, physical, and special effects all to make that, that one TV look the way it, it did. Yeah, they used like a, a rubber kind of material on it, correct? And they, it was a mechanical process. Yes, and then they shot the uh, the projection of the video onto this inflatable rubber, and that's how they were able to get that effect. Yeah, I mean the effects in this film are a, a great. It's great practical effects. It's uh, an astounding achievement in that way. Rick Baker was the effects expert for this film, and he did a great job. But he also worked for American Werewolf in London. That was uh, one of his big credits there. So you can tell that he definitely knows what he's doing, and he has worked on several other things as well. Yes, and I was trying to debate if I want to talk about Rick Baker now or or later during the influence. But yeah, Rick Baker is. Uh, definitely a man to give a lot of credit to, especially during this film. And yeah, American Werewolf in London put him on the map. That's We have a plan right now to do that in October. So I'm looking forward to that. That's that's a great practical achievement, like not just for Rick Baker's portfolio, but just in general for movies of all sorts. What did you think about the... So you like the effects in this movie? What did you think about the body horror and when you do you think it was too much, too little? Did you think it was kind of cheesy, funny? Uh, so it's interesting because this film is so much about a theme of desensitization. You know, being exposed to different images and uh, graphic images make you desensitized to it. So I don't know if I was desensitized to it, but I feel like for me, I was expecting way worse than what I saw. Um, especially because it, like it is, it looks great. Don't get me wrong. It looks great. It's great practical effects, but it's still a, a slightly dated. I think it holds up, but it is slightly dated compared to some of the gore that you would see uh, today. And so I feel like it didn't bother me as much as maybe some modern uh, things that we'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, I think it was well done and I enjoyed it. If you can say that you enjoy body horror. I mean, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, but I do think that I didn't react the way I was expecting to react. I definitely expected way more gore. Uh, so like I said, it might just be me desensitized to it, which, you know, is an interesting conversation in itself. Yes. And I even had it played up in my head before watching this, uh, movie a second time. I was thinking, I was like, oh man, I don't want to have to go through this again. And watching, I was like, okay, it's not. It's not too bad. It's, it really isn't. It really isn't that bad. I think there's like some other things that are a little bit harder to watch. Like I said, there's there's torture. There's there's no real rape on screen, but there's implied rape. There's uh, I, I never know how to pronounce the word masochism. Say the masochism. Masochism. Yes. Yeah. There's some masochism going on in the film, and that kind of is a little bit more uh. Un- a little bit more uncomfortable than the actual body horror that's going on in the film. Yeah, I but will the- say, I don't think this is a spoiler because it happens pretty early on, but there is a scene where, a sex scene, where 
Max actually pierces the ears of the woman he's with because she she is a masochist. And as someone who doesn't have their ears pierced and is iffy of needles, that, that did get me more than some of the other body horror in this film. Yeah, something in this film is going to get you. Something in this film is going to get you. <laughs> it, it, that got me at first because I thought he was like sticking it straight in her, like through her neck or something. Not noticing that it was the ear first. When I noticed it was the ear, I said, oh, okay, I got it. I'm I'm good. It was like gross to me and unsettling, but at the same time, I was laughing at it because I kept thinking about the Lindsay Lohan parent trap. Because in that video, in that movie, she pierces the girl's ears because they need to match, they need to be each other, and the one has pierced ears and the other one doesn't. So she just kind of grabs a piece of ice and just sticks a needle in it. And so I just kept thinking of that, and it was not an appropriate moment to be thinking about the parent trap no. with little child <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. But I, I did get a laugh thinking about it. It helped uh, <laughs> ease the uneasiness. <laughs> like that you brought up the word desensitized because the characters in this movie, they are desensitized. And again, that is their social commentary that's being made is that you're able to look at these things and not be phased of it. Like the characters are able to see certain things going on on, on TV and they're just kind of looking at it like it's normal. And I'm curious what you thought about the performances here. I thought James Wood was really good. <clears throat> Excuse me. And his character was interesting in that he was desensitized, but there was he wasn't at his limit yet. There were still some things that, or he was at his limit at points. Like there were some things that he wasn't comfortable with right away. Like when he is with his love interest in here, uh, played by what's her name again? Debbie something. Debbie I think De- Baker. Oh. Debbie Harry. His love interest played by Debbie Harry, who is a magic, magicism, magicism, masochism, 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 masochism. She's into that. And because when they first watch Videodrome together, she wants to, she's saying that she would like to do something like that. And he's like, well, why would you want to do something like that? Why do you want to be tortured? Why would you subject yourself to that? And she asks for him to give her a cut on her shoulder. And he's surprised that he she allows people to do that to her. And she asks if he wants to try some things. And he goes ahead and he does try it. So there's this interesting take that we find this character in because you think that he's completely desensitized, but he's not. But also it's not like he's it's not like he's turned off from the fact. Like he's willing to try out things. So He's like the perfect character you would understand that would be becoming obsessive about this videotape and wanting to know more about it. While at the same time, he's not going in, you know, blinded. He's he's still he's still cautious. He's still timid to the fact. Yeah, I kind of feel that Nikki embodied what Max wanted for the station. You know, he was looking for something that was frightening and stimulating and, you know, with the station and with his job at the station, he has control over that programming and what it can do. And likewise, he kind of felt like he should have the control over Nikki. You know, she says she wants to do something and, sh- and he says, no, you're not allowed to do that. Don't do that. And, and she does it anyways that we see in the film. So I don't think he had control over her as much as he expected. He wanted that frightening and stimulating and uncontrollable kind of vibe, but you know, in reality, that's not really what he wants. 
Yeah. Or he wanted just he wants to get control of things and he found something that he that would be a challenge to control. Yeah, definitely. Did you like the performances in this movie? Um I like them for what the film was trying to do. I think that they fit in the vibe of the film. I think the acting is definitely more the acting style is a little bit more dated than you'd see. It's a little bit less natural than you would see, I think, in modern films. But I think that it fit because, you know, you have this idea that everything's a hallucination. You know, it's very much a, an awareness of what's on screen and what you're watching on screen. And there's a commentary on that. So I was okay with it being a little bit more uh, bigger, I guess, larger in acting style. I can see that. Now, let's talk about the second thing that this movie is really known for. And that's the message. So the message in this film, this movie came out when VHS tapes became a large thing, like the video home entertainment market started booming. That was the 1980s. This movie was released in the 1983. And with now the accessibility to all these videos, you know, you kind of have like two phases in accessibility to entertainment and information or three. First, you have the printed literature and then you had the home video market, and then you have which we're in right now, which is the internet. And all have had its moments of censorship as well, and people very cautious and even worried about what this is going to do to society. So with the video market and now all these videos being available to people, especially available to minors who can just go ahead and just pick this VH tape up, or they can buy it from somebody, they were worried that they were going to be exposed to uh, what's popularly known as violent imagery. So Cronenberg designed this film as a way to portray what people believe to be the product of this violent imagery. In kind of an exaggerated form, of course. But this film is to say like, hey, for everybody that's really worried about this violent imagery, I guess this is what you think is going to actually happen, which is it's not. And he said, if that was true, then we would already be past that breaking point in what you have because we're, we're already exposed to violent imagery every day, even before the video home market. And we see that a lot. Uh, you know, video games was another one that was a big thing. People worried about mm -hmm. Grand Theft Auto. Hey, if you can go out on in the video games and just, you know, shoot, shoot up a whole, a whole district, then they may want to go out in real life and do the same thing. So the video market... They had a huge scare, and probably the biggest scare that anyone had was the United Kingdom, in which they actually went ahead and they posed an act, the 1984 uh, Video Recording Act, and which led to a number of films being known as the Video Nasty, which, Caitlin, you brought to my attention recently. Do you want to go ahead and tell the audience what a Video Nasty is? Yeah, Video Nasties are a series of videos that the UK deemed as inappropriate. Uh, and these can be for different reasons. It can be for sexual content. It could be for, for violence. Um, and so it kind of started even before the act that they were kind of labeling these videos. And they basically wanted to keep this out of a public eye. You know, they wanted to save the children, you know. And so they created this act that kind of added a sense of legality to it. And to crack down on, on bootleggers, you might be passing around these videos. 
And while this isn't a film that's on the the video nasties, I would say go out and look at the video nasties list. There are some notable films on there that you may have heard of, some which did make the list and others which didn't because the films did have to try to go out for that certificate to receive that passing for them. But some companies knew that they weren't going to make it, so they said, hey, we're not even going to try such movies as The Exorcist. I will say Cronenberg did have a film. It wasn't this one, but it was his 1977 film, Rabid. That one was labeled as a video nasty. Scanners as well. And Scanners had... So sometimes the video nasties could get released in theaters and released in the home market, but they had to have been cut. They had to cut the scenes. And if you think that, well, at least, you know, we're not doing that anymore nowadays. No, some countries are still asking for their movies to be cut and for different reasons i found out recently that several films ever since uh shang chi the mcu films have not been released in china which is like the second biggest box office in the world and they have not released a movie since shang chi shang chi first the actors were under fire because of things that they had said and then no way home like well what does china have a problem with in spider-man no way home Well, the Statue of Liberty was in the movie during its final climax, and they asked for them to cut out that whole scene of the Statue of Liberty. Of course, Disney said, no, we're not going to go ahead and do that. That's like, why? That's way too much. But they did censor Eternals, correct? I know that there is a history of them censoring out LGBT content. I don't even think Eternals got a a release as well, because that was after Shang-Chi. Ever since Shang-Chi... It might have been for a different country, though, but I'm pretty sure they did censor that. I think between the sex scene and the, the uh, some of the LGBT content between Fastos and his husband. I'll have to take a look, but I think Disney wasn't cutting anything anymore. And I'm just... pretty sure they did, and they, they finally didn't for... I think the first time they finally said, okay, we're not going to cut anything, was in uh, Doctor Strange for America Chavez's moms. Well, there was something else that China said that they didn't want in Doctor Strange. Grant, nobody knows what it is. Something apparently alluded to a communist, anti-communist message. With the video nasties as well, there's actually, what I found interesting, there were different sections of video nasties. You have one through three, one being prosecutable. So if you had these videos or you were giving them to minors, you could actually face imprisonment for that. And then you have the lower subsection, which is they can just confiscate it and they'll destroy it. So based and that was based on the movie. So the worse the movie was in their eyes, the worse the punishment was going to be. And Eternals did not open in China and isn't expected to be granted a release in the future, despite being directed by a China born female maker. Okay, it might have been for a different country, but I remember there was a lot of uh, uproar about it being cut out. What I find interesting, too, about the video nasties, and actually it wasn't until 2010 that this was repealed. Granted, they weren't really adding in many other films, but they still had this act. And there was some technicality between this and the European Commission that they realized in, I think, 2004, 2009, And that's when they went ahead and repealed the act and it was replaced. So this is something we're no longer seeing anymore, but it's something that did exist. And it's funny because it's still relevant to today. People, a lot of people like to jump on this because it has a popular word attached to it, which is cancel culture. 
were like, oh man, these generations are soft. They're trying to cancel everything. Like cancel culture, yeah, it has a buzzword right now, but it's been around forever. Like I said, with the with the distribution of entertainment and media from books to video uh, marketing to video games to the internet, there's constantly been this censorship and silence to things. I mean, book banning is... You know, we think of book banning and it sounds like a 19th century thing, but I remember going to school and they actually would go ahead and let you know the books that are banned. And there's crazy books that are banned that you wouldn't even realize. Another one being the the uh, the Hayes Act. Wait, Hayes or Maze? Hayes. Hayes Code? Uh, hey, yeah, the Hayes Code, which we'll talk about in another episode. I have that prepared for an, another time. Uh, another one that was kind of popular around this time or actually the decade before was the comic book authority code which i don't think i'm going to have another chance to talk about the comic book authority code so i do want to throw it in there uh which they were censoring comic books they there was material that they didn't want the children to read and you would think okay cool they don't they don't want to see rape they don't want to see sex and violence that's understandable but they had some other things in there as well that was more of a censorship that could have been problematic in which any civil authorities Anything from the government, your your police force, your judges, they could not be brought into a bad light. They always had to be ultimately good. If they weren't, they wouldn't receive this comic book authority code. If they didn't receive that, then they had the huge possibility of not being distributed in some stores, thus losing money. Uh, another one I found interesting on there is that women had to be drawn in realistic standards, which with the comic book history, I'm like... Yeah, I can understand that. And honestly, maybe we should keep that one around. Some people get a little too crazy. Some people get a little unreal unrealistic. Unrealistic. And I feel like a lot of times with that art, it's just like ugly. Like the proportions are just like weird. They look like yeah. insects almost, not even real women. <laughs> it's like if you're gonna draw them sexy, at least draw them well. <laughs> yeah. And Another interesting one and kind of relates to the Hayes Code a little bit is that if there was crime, the hero had to come out on top by the the story's end. Like it had to, you couldn't, you couldn't praise criminals in any positive light and the hero had to win at the end of the day. So it was censoring stories. It was making it like, hey, no, it has to be about this and you can't, you know, you can't express yourself beyond it. And Again, going back to this movie, this is what Cronenberg is like, well, is this what you guys are scared of? Because by the way that everybody's going all hysterical about this, this is pretty much what you guys think is realistically going to happen. You think that the videos that people are going to watch are going to start producing hallucinogenic uh, input into their minds and that they're going to lose sight of reality and they're going to start committing violence and start losing themselves and society itself is going to crumble which of course like no this isn't this isn't possible of course this is exaggerated nothing in this film can really happen but that's what they were scared of it is interesting though that you say that especially since there were actually shots from this film during its theatrical release that were censored out of it uh one scene in particular that was censored out early on in the film and and i do want to talk about this a little bit more in depth he is looking for new porn videos to show on the broadcast and he looks for uh he looks at a soft porn called samurai dreams it's it's a very racist stereotypical uh porn that we will get into but there is a a dildo scene 
in that video that he's watching and that itself was edited out in the theatrical release and some censorship is going to take place and like i said some of it some of it makes sense like some of it i understand why you wouldn't want to have that in there uh especially if you're gonna have a theatrical release which i'm not even sure pg-13 was made yet yeah pg-13 wasn't until uh until the 90s but granted this movie definitely still wouldn't have gotten a pg-13 rating if it was available this got a a rated r but still rated r r had its limitations because you still had that possibility of the x and nc 17 rating which were given out more leisurely back in those days so kind of moving off that and kind of going back to what i said was some racist pornographic depictions there was that that porn at the very beginning, like I said, this is the very beginning of the film, uh, that porn kind of shows a fetishization of Asian culture, but then it also, one of the characters while watching that video does say some very racist words against Asian people. I believe he calls them a not-so-nice word, and he says it's unnatural. Um, and then later on in the film, you also see in a restaurant there are like dancers that are exploiting other cultures as well and so it really does go into the federalization of this and, and something that has been an issue with with porn and movies for a while and I, I feel like I wasn't sure if the film was trying to give a message of that or not I think by adding that racist line almost by a character that you know is kind of a scumbag character I feel like maybe he was trying to make a point, but but maybe not so, but I'm not entirely sure. I think he was trying to make a point. I think with that inclusion, yes. But, you know, I I feel like that didn't really go anywhere, so it kind of didn't, it left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth because there wasn't really a commentary on it, I don't feel. Well, I think it was just something that was put, like, I don't know, I think sometimes you have like your main focus of the commentary that you're trying to make and then sometimes you just add in little side pieces that like, hey, I can't get to this with the story that I have, but do know that this exists. Yeah. Do you think that this message was portrayed well? Do you think that it was depicted well? I think it does give a good idea of you know, like stimulation, desensitization, and just the control that media has over us in screens. And I think especially today in today's uh, culture, you know, having screens with the internet and just the kind of control there and being glued to our phones all the time. I think it, it especially is a relevant idea. Like I said, conceptually, I really do like this film. I think that, like I said, I think the plot for me is what kind of, it kind of got off track a little bit for me. I think sometimes the execution was kind of silly. And I think, I think in a way, parts of it was meant to be silly, but it wasn't something that I was expecting going into it. I could see that. Yeah, some of it was a bit far-fetched, but I mean, the whole movie is this exaggerated tale. Yeah, and, and I typically do like exaggerated tales, um, but I feel like it wasn't that it was far-fetched. I don't think that's quite the word. It's, I feel like sometimes... Like, I almost wish that even if the plot is simple, I wish it would have been even simpler. Like I said, almost if you have more of that kind of room to really think things through and what's happening instead of, you know, I feel like he kind of feeds you some of uh, what's going on. Sometimes it doesn't, it didn't come from natural thinking. It just seemed like he was just feeding you what was going on. I think this is also 
a good telling of someone going in that downward downward spiral uh, in their mind and just kind of losing it slowly or or you know steadily. Uh, we see this in a lot of movies, and I think sometimes it doesn't always do it well. I think sometimes it just goes a little bit too far, or there's still there's an imbalance with the what is real, and what's not. And I think here it sets itself up to where like, all right, now we this is the point that we can't trust anything, and mm-hmm. kind of like he has to do, we kind of have to go with it and see how it all pans out, and yeah, rely I- not on the narrator anymore to tell us what is real and what is not. Yeah, I was going to say, I do think that this is one of the better examples of an unreliable narrator. I think sometimes we have films, um, and I'm blanking on an example of this, but it's an unreliable narrator because at the end it's like the big twist, oh, it was all a dream, you know, in that kind of sense. But it doesn't really do that. It kind of tells you halfway that this is a hallucination. And everything from the point he first watches that that first video from Videodrome, everything from that point could be real or not real. Uh, Nikki herself could be real or not real. We don't really know. She could just be a figment of his mind. And I think it has, like I said, with that balance, because some characters do come in, certain things are revealed, and you're like, all right, that's that's a hard fact, and at least now you can wrap these things around this, and you can, it's kind of like giving a piece to uh, a decryption code. You're like, all right, now I have this, and I can I can make out, what all of this means. A film that comes to mind that is going to be a bit controversial because I know a lot of people love this film, and that's Joker. I think I think Joker dropped the ball when it came to what is real, what is not, because I think yeah. they it by the end of the story, it felt like it just happened at the end. They were like, by the way, was this real? Was it not? Was this in his head? Was it not? And then they did the whole like going back and showing. You know that hey none of this was real though and it's like yeah i kind of got that i'm not sure why you're holding my hand right now also i feel like this was tacked on afterwards and it's so much that not only is it what can i believe and what can i believe honestly it's like do i even care if it was true or if it wasn't true when you're trying to use that as the big reveal or you know that that's the message i think it, it falls apart but here i think it has a good balance between that those hallucinations and the what is real and what is not downward spiral. I think it. I think it comes together well. Yeah, I do agree with that. So the influence it had and its significance. Yeah, that's right. We're combining the two now. Yeah, we decided <laughs> to put these two subjects together because honestly, they overlap a lot and a little too much. You know, repeating things. So we're going to talk about the influence it had now and the significance that it had. One of the significance that we already talked about. Is during the time that it came out, it came out during that time when the home video market blew up. When it was VHS tapes were everywhere, they were switching out hands, and you know, anybody could see anything almost. Even though this movie shows that, man, it was it was hard to get your, your hands on some material back on the day. I mean, this man had to plan out his whole day, had to wake up early in the morning to meet a client to get himself some videos, and now you can just <laughs> go online and just do that in like two seconds. Be done. So th- this movie provided some interesting commentary. It's unfortunate that this couldn't be introduced to a wider audience due to the 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 portrayal and the depiction of it. But it did make a very a very timely message. One that there's actually an interview going on during this movie, and I was watching the interview. And I was like, man, you could you could recreate this interview, f- switch out a couple words, and it would apply to today. 
as like how much of an influence is the screen really having and is it really breaking reality for people? Yeah, I think that there is also this film was very ahead of its time just with its effects. I mean, we already talked about how uh, good the effects were, how good the practical effects were. Like you said, uh, Rick uh, Baker, is that his name? Was yeah, very, Rick Baker. Rick Baker was, you know, a master at this, but even they had to cut out some things that they wanted in the film because they couldn't do the effects, um, which isn't any indication or it's, I'm not saying anything bad about how they did this at all. I mean, what they did is brilliant. And obviously with the limitations back in the day, there's only, there's some things that are going to be hard to do back then. So it would be interesting to see, you know, those scenes, you know, with modern technology. Personally speaking, I would be curious to see some of those things that they wanted to come out, especially something that they, uh, I think that especially towards the ending of the film, there could have been a little bit more at the end. I think you could do a remake or at least a retelling of this message for today. I think it'd be, it'd be rather interesting. And yes, the effects, the effects are great. You said, no, uh, sorry, I was about to say John Carpenter again. David Cronenberg, he really showed people like, hey, here is that that by horror and here's what you can do and here's what your effects team can do and also here's what they can't do because like you said there are a lot of things in the script that they had to cut because they're like we can't make this work i mean they had one that they were close but they ended up deleting the scene anyway in which a tv was going to float out of a bathtub and they were going to buy a non-conductive liquid but the non-conductive liquid was $25 a quart remember this is 19 19- this is the 1980s, so $25 even went further. It, it sounds like a lot of fun they were having on set trying to find ways to create these things. When Rip Baker received the script, you know, he already had this mentality of like, I can make anything onto the screen. And Cronenberg said, all right, here you go. And he said, can, 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 I, uh, can, can I switch my words around? I can create almost anything on screen. Mm-hmm. He received the script and was like, how am I even going to make most of this stuff? But he went at it. Uh, so great for him because they... They were able to make the floating TV actually without electrocuting. They didn't buy that stuff, but they wrapped it in so much insulation that it wouldn't electrocute somebody. But they also found out that TVs back in the day floated. They didn't know that. Everybody, they threw this TV in and then it started floating. They're like, oh, because of the how vacuum tight the tubes were inside of it, mm. it made the TV float. So TVs float, guys. Or back then, those those types of TVs float. Yeah, and no, don't try do, this at home. <laughs> yeah, do not try this at home. Like, oh man, TV's flow, and they just throw one in while you're taking a bath or in the pool. Don't do that. But <laughs> Rick Baker, in, yeah, he's a master. If you like werewolves, I know uh, on the, the last podcast that we were on, we were talking about werewolves. Uh, I believe it was uh, Kane that was really into werewolves as well. If you're really Baron? into werewolves, yeah, Baron, Baron Kane. That's why I was looking at his name right now. Uh, <laughs> If you if you like werewolves, man, a man that you got to respect is Rick Baker. Because ever since that, he proved himself an American werewolf in London. He's been kind of the go-to person for werewolf movies. And actually, he did The Howling, which was before American Werewolf in London. And then he did uh, several other movies and werewolf effects. I wonder if he's going to come back for uh, Wolfman with Ryan Gosling. That would be pretty interesting. Uh, Rick Baker, he's also, it's not only horror that he's done before as well. He did the special effects for How the Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey. He even did the makeup effects for Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. And if you remember that movie, Robert Downey Jr. was in some heavy blackface, which, of course, not it, that was part of the joke. 
in the movie. So it wasn't offensive. But yeah, I didn't know Rick Baker was the one that did the effects for that as well. They like that's I think that's like how socially conscious they were. They're like, dang, if we do this, like we gotta nail it. Like we can't just slather him up in shoe shine, like, all right, get Rick Baker on the phone. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure was an interesting conversation. Like, hey Rick, uh, I feel about blackface. Oof, yeah. And and speaking of Rick, uh, Rick and Morty uh, was influenced by this by David Cronenberg as well. There is an episode titled after Cronenberg, and in Rick and Morty, there is a uh, there is a universe in which it's been Cronenberged up. So Rick and Morty, there's this episode in which basically they just screw everything up, and people start transforming into these these prey mantises and just these. Uh, insane creatures and it shows a lot of animated body horror but it gets to the point that the like they they can't turn it around and now you just got all these creatures running around and it looks like something from the mind of Cronenberg and they refer to it as the Cronenberg Earth or the Cronenberg planet something like that which they actually they come back to in another episode but the reason they call it the the Cronenberg or they say the Cronenberg things up it's because these creatures look like they were created by Cronenberg himself. I think I vaguely remember this episode. I don't think I remembered the Cronenberg reference, though. But that's yeah, it was the first it fits season. In. Yeah, yeah, it definitely I, fits. And it probably has the most uh, existential uh, pro- provocation. Pro- provocation. I can never say that word. Pro- pro- to provoke. <laughs> Provocate. Pro- provocation. God dang it! You know what I'm saying. Help me out. I understand, but I don't think that's the right usage of that word. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's probably like his most existential crisis episode as well. The, the ending in it. Provoking? Yeah, provoking, but I was trying to... There's Not the provocation. provocation. Provocation would be something else. It would be provoking, I think, in the context that you're using it. Or wait, I think I was trying to say pr- pr- prerogative. No, not prerogative. <laughs> Definitely not prerogative. <laughs> God dang it. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway... <laughs> It provokes the thoughts of existential crisis the most in Rick and Morty, or at least it was like his first episode in which it really made you think about things, and it's uh it's heavily quoted as well. But anyway, moving on from that because I don't even know what the words I'm looking for anymore. Another influence that this had, and I was wondering if you noticed it, was brand new cherry flavor. Yes, I was going to bring that up. Okay, if you're going to bring it up, I'll let you have it. Go ahead, take it. Take it away. So we actually haven't talked too much about this yet, but one of the main instances of body horror in Videodrome is the the slit that forms, the hole that forms in Max's abdomen. Uh, It's considered to be part of his hallucination. That slit in his abdomen is very much noted to be vaginal in appearance. And that is one of the big takeaways from that. And and he, several times in the film, he does stick things in his abdomen or other people stick things in his abdomen. Uh, at one point, he sticks a gun, which is a very phallic object, uh, let's be real, uh, into his abdomen. And other times, other people stick uh, VHS tapes in it. Or actually, they use Betamax tapes because VHS tapes were too big for the stomach slit that they were using. But he basically turns into a, a walking VCR player. Brand new cherry flavor is a series that came out last year on Netflix. It's a horror series. And this show has some of the most insane instances of body horror I think I've ever seen. 
I think part of the reason why I was desensitized to Videodrome was probably because of this show. I think that there are I moments that. that genuinely made me queasy. So it, it's a good one to watch for body horror. Um, but there is a specific instance in Brand New Cherry Flavor in a particular episode where our main character has a hole in her side um, that is supposed to present a vaginal opening. Yes, and it goes even further. And it's quite the disturbing scene that's also played romantically in a way. I mean, I was kind of feeling it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. But brand new cherry flavor. That scene definitely took from Cronenberg, definitely took from Videodrome. No question. Yeah, no question at all. Even like kind of combining that both the that that body horror and sexual references as well or or sex and horror together like Mm -hmm. sex and and flesh like combining those those two elements together and again that's something that was used in brand new cherry flavor and it's used in here as well i would say another film that i could definitely see some influences from videodrome is one that we've actually talked about on the podcast and that's the matrix uh, both in its criticism of, you know, media technology, but also specifically that scene where they take the bug out of his belly button. I definitely feel like that was Cronenberg-esque. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I never thought about that. But yeah, they both have uh, they both have similar themes as well. Kind of mm-hmm. just the, the question of reality and what is actually put in front of us. Mm-hmm, definitely. So a lot of, a lot of body horror. A lot of sex, a lot of just straight up horror, a bit of a complex plot, heavy message. All this combined into one of Cronenberg's best films. But who would you recommend it to? Between the general audience and the cinephiles. I had a good answer for this and then I forgot it already. I should have written it down. Um, I definitely think that I would avoid giving this to a general audience just because there is a lot of interpretation. I think maybe if you like analyzing film, if you, like I said, you're a cinephile or just tend to have a more analytic personality, then you can can gain something from this more so. Yeah, I understand why you would recommend that. I would probably do the same. Uh, for me, though, it's going to be, it's just me strictly cinephiles. They're really going to be the ones to be open to this movie and it's going to be accessible for them. The only time that I would recommend this to a general audience member is the, again, I believe we mentioned this before, the horror selection is small. So it gets to a point that you're kind of watching anything that is at least decent. And I think this is above being decent. This is a movie that if there's a, you know, a horror aficionado out there that wants to watch more. I would recommend this movie for them. Yeah, I think that's originally what I had thought too, actually. I think that like for horror fans who want to know kind of the background of this body horror, if you are a fan of body horror and want to learn more about it, then this is definitely the film to watch. So before I open up this classified folder, is there anything else that you want to mention? Or declassified folder? No, yeah, classified. Is there anything declassified you want to say before I open up the classification of classified folder? Uh, I think we can go ahead and go into our classified section. All right, guys. Well, HQ has given us the go-ahead. We're going to go and open up this classified folder. So we will now be talking about spoilers. If you have not seen the movie, do please proceed with caution or go ahead, watch the film, and then come back and take take a listen. All right, Caitlin. So I'll let you go ahead. Where do you want to start with the spoilers? 
I know you said something about the the ending started to get a little out there for you. Yeah, uh, we can go back to that in a minute. First, I want to talk actually about the character Barry Convex, the our the leader or businessman of Spectacular Optical. You know, it, it's, he's kind of an interesting businessman because he he's peddles sunglasses, videodrome weapons. <laughs> he does it all. <laughs> well, yeah, he also so he gives glasses to the third world countries, and then he also makes. Uh, Lenses for guided missiles for NATO as well, mm-hmm. which is kind of a kind of a stereotype for big CEOs and, and billionaires in global affairs having kind of these these dual these these dual roles in which they're pretty much benefiting from all sides. His character was actually inspired by a televangelist, uh, Jim Baker, from the seventies and eighties, who was later revealed to be a fraud and was convicted with criminal charges. And seeing his kind of the way he talked, I can definitely get that televangelist feel. Yes, step. Oh, yeah. Even the scene where he has the big open stage, it looked a lot like that. Those mm-hmm. mega churches you see. And if you don't know this man, you more than likely have heard of his wife, Tammy Faye, who he had a show with as well. And Tammy Faye actually had a movie come out last year in 2021 in which Jessica Chastain won the Best Actress Award for portraying as well. And yeah, screw this guy. These <laughs> these people who use mega churches to commit fraud, which is something that happens quite a lot. There's a couple big names. I can't remember their names. Screw them anyway. They don't deserve them. One of them I know like during one of the big hurricanes, like he shut his doors to everybody when he could have definitely helped out a lot, uh, which is if you're a man of religion, then helping out others is something that should be on your priority. But of course, not for him. Uh, these people are these mega churches, not saying all of them, even though I think the whole mega church uh, idea has a lot of issues within it, but basically saying that, and in this character, this guy, uh, what's his name again? Because I'm mixing up these berries and bakers and rich and very convex very convex yeah so very convex he was uh imprisoned for fraud he was saying that a lot of this money was oh, sorry, going sorry 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 no very convex is the character that is based off jim baker jim baker is uh jim baker yeah, see, i told you the names get confusing <laughs> uh jim baker used these he used the funds that he said was going overseas and he used them to put into this city that he was basically growing. Like he was growing his own town, his own religious town, quote unquote, uh, and then also using it for personal expenses as well. I think it was $350,000 that he ended up getting investigated for. He also gave some cover up money to one of his secretaries because she was making an allegation of rape as well. Uh, and this guy is actually still working uh, today. So he's still out there doing his thing. He served his time. I don't know if he learned anything. He has several books written out. Uh, you know, I, I I hope he did learn from it. I hope he truly is a man of God now. If not, then no, I'm not the one to pass judgment. Hopefully he gets what he gets. Yeah, I actually uh, wrote a short film. It was for a 48-hour film festival. It was called Prophet. And it followed a, a middle-aged woman who is a follower of one of these televangelists, and she gives all her money to this man, uh, hoping that it would help her father who is ill, and then she learns that he is actually spending this on himself and all his mansions and all his cars, and, and she goes out and gets revenge for that. 
So, so that I think that that idea of televangelism it is definitely a sketchy occupation because you do hear these stories all this time with these mega churches and the idea of this greed behind this corporation you know and a church shouldn't be a corporation but that's what they are yeah if you're not familiar what we're saying either and you have like a little bit of energy and a little bit of anger built up that you want to get out then definitely look this up because man you got these preachers out there out there with these mega churches buying themselves private jets and doing all kinds of crazy things because the other problem is mega churches with all churches is that they're they can't be taxed so they're making all this non-taxable income i mean i'm not saying all of them are bad i'm pretty sure there are some good ones out there some ones that are truly children of god but there's some skeezy ones out there as well but going back to barry convicts this is kind of where the plot for me it started to drag and it just kind of fell off a little bit for me. Uh, you know, Barry Convex is the kind of, I wouldn't say he's the mastermind behind Videodrome. I, I think I, I'm not even clearly sure how they stumbled across this, but he's definitely the villain of our story. And his motivations to me of why he wants to use Videodrome, you know, he had a sleeper agent at the television station the whole time because he wants to take control of the television station so he can broadcast out Videodrome and, you know, catch his evil deeds, his evil plan. And he does kind of have a moment where he's all explaining this all to Max with his evil plan, you know, that kind of stereotypical villain voice, just, ha ha, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, he was a bit cliche in that part. Though his plan was... To actually make America better. He said that right now we're not one of the greatest countries and that's because of people like you, because of people like Max who are providing these videos to these people. So what he was going to do is he was going to broadcast it on that channel and then all of his followers were then, or not followers, all the audience will watch this, they will go crazy and then kill themselves and basically mm -hmm. purge that portion of society out of America and then they can truly rise up as they should be. Yeah, he wanted to make America great again. He wanted to make America great again. Funny how we keep coming back to that. Yeah. But for me, this part of the plot just, I don't know, it wasn't doing it for me. I think this is where it becomes a little bit more, not stereotypical, but more more common, more conventional storytelling, I think. It's like, all right, here's the here's the big bad guy and here's his master evil plan. I think the problem for me is that Videodrome was so mysterious, you know, it was so such an odd thing that was happening and this mystery behind this video for me just kind of was ruined once it started getting into that background. Yeah, I think again it was it was simplified. I do like what they first did with Videodrome and which are which they told the audience, like, hey, it seems like it's being made in Malaysia. And then, no, you find out that it's actually being made in the States. It kind of shows, like, hey, no, things are closer on the home front than you think they are. Or you may be quick to blame other countries, but no, this is your own doing. Yeah, I did like that as well. And then, of course, he goes and he now becomes a sleeper assassin. And he goes out and kills his partners. And he goes to kill another woman, but she's able to turn him and break him free from at least their control but now he's kind of under a new control which could be seen as the people being gullible to what they see on screen at that time you see one news story tell you hey this is wrong but then you watch another one and said no they're the ones that are wrong and it's it can switch your mind around 
I will say that the new control, I'm blanking on her name, um, the daughter of the television personality. I'll just call her Miss Oblivion. Yeah, Miss Oblivion. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> well, and Miss Oblivion, you know, turns him around and sends him back after Barry and his uh, lackeys. The moment when he finally kills Barry Convex, I think for me that was fun. I don't know. It's kind of messed up. <laughs> for me, it was definitely a issues. very gory, gory scene, but I think that was definitely a fun kill. <laughs> you know, you see the body horror, I think, more in that scene where he kind of just erupts, and I thought that was a kind of cool moment. I didn't know those were all tumors. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, but which... Yeah, I don't know. That one felt kind of unnecessary to me. I was like, why? Really? <laughs> yeah, I was like, we already had the one dude just blow up or had his hand turn into a grenade. So, so yeah, this is, uh, I don't know. I guess they just had to one-up the last kill. Yeah, see, the one where he blew up, that I wasn't doing anything for me. I was like, what? Because I didn't even realize it was a grenade on his hand. I was just like, what the heck is that? <laughs> well, I think it's the playback in which uh, Barry tells James Woods, he says, hey, I wouldn't touch those. Those are dynamite. And he, you see him like packaging up the boxes later. The, the, the pirate dude, and he, he pulls something. It looks like he pulls it from the package. So I guess it's to say that is the dynamite, or maybe the dynamite was foreshadow. I'm not, I'm not too sure. It was just like a square. It didn't look like a grenade or dynamite or anything like that. That's why I was confused. Well, this time I was, I was watching it. And I was really trying to focus. I was like, what is that? And <laughs> then it, what it looks like, and the only thing that I can think of that is explosive like that. Uh, are the German grenades in which it's like a cylinder and then it's a stick. Oh, uh, okay. Not not like our typical American grenade, which is like a, a baseball. With the foreshadow too, there was some of it placed in here or there was like a mirroring. I don't know if you noticed it. I, I didn't notice it the first time, but there's three posters in this film that are kind of telling you what's, that I guess is kind of separating it in acts. So in the first act, he's talking, he's saying, I want something, I want something new. And behind him is a poster that literally just says something. <laughs> and then another time when he's trying to find Videodrome and he's talking to his consultant or the one who brings him materials, the older woman, he t he tells her, like, I think this is the new thing. I think this is something that we can pull and distribute out. I think this is what people really want. And behind him now, next to that poster of something, uh, there's a poster that reads From the Depths. And they're all like movie posters, so there's From the Depths. And that actually becomes a line later in that act in which he's saying like this, something has come from the depths and video drone has come from the depths and uh, into him. And now things are coming from within his depths. And lastly, there's another poster before he goes in and he kills his two partners. There's a poster that just reads evil. Yeah, I didn't notice this at all. Well, something, something <laughs> kind of, I guess my, like my eyes were like tuned to find something because yeah. one, it's my second time watching it, but also we got done watching the Cornetto trilogy, which has a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So talking about the ending of this film and, and kind of what I was going from there is that this idea of the new flesh is brought up and I know it was this kind of a Cronenberg thing. Was there a reference to the new flesh in existence? I'm trying to remember what their like final lines were. I don't really remember. I was thinking that too, and I was trying to remember the final lines, and I forgot to look it up. But it, it is like they say, long live to something. Uh, but in this movie, the popular saying is, long live the new flesh, which again is a signature of David Cronenberg talking about flesh. 
for those who have seen The Fly, in The Fly, he talks about being in the new flesh when he's transforming into that, excuse me, into that Brundle Fly. He's talking about being in new flesh. And like we said, body horror being his thing and biological horror, flesh is, you know, it's, it's seen to him like something that can be, that's something that can be like manipulated, something that humans are trying to improve or get out of or really conscious of humans are conscious of their flesh but this idea of the new flesh so from my understanding it was a basically videodrome technology media was merging with the human existence and creating something new correct so for yeah. me i kind of wish i had this a little bit more explored at the end i know that the ending was something that they changed a lot they had a lot of different endings that they were going with and they finally just decided to end with that gunshot as max kills himself to become the new flesh but there was also an alternate ending where they could have afterwards shown him in videodrome back with nikki and then i also kind of heard it was from a one YouTube video. I don't know if this is an actually proposed ending or just something that the YouTuber was uh, expressing that they wanted, but they wanted to see kind of like a tangling of limbs and cords between Nikki and Max at the end of a vision of this and what kind of an idea of what that new flesh would look like. And I kind of wish that there had been a little bit more after um, the gunshot. Maybe not necessarily those endings, but something, you know, I think I wanted a little bit something more about this new flesh. I do too. I agree. There could have been something explored more with it. And I forgot to mention when he's killing those individuals, they're repeating to him, like, you have to kill these persons, like, kill them, kill them all. And I think that's the biggest worry that people have when it comes to video. They're worried that the screen is going to tell their kids to pick up the gun and kill their parents. Of course, that hasn't happened. And again, that's something that's very, uh, is an exaggerated belief, but I feel like they kind of played on it in this movie as well. And also even with him just killing himself at the end. I would say that it's not exaggerated, though, in today's world. I think that the media has become definitely something even bigger than what Videodrome, I think, expected. And you see, like, the internet now being in some of these, like, discussions and stuff in some of these chat rooms that can have a negative influence and and, and cyberbullying and stuff like that and I definitely think that violence can come out of the media even more so than before but I don't think violent media in itself is the cause of instances but it definitely the internet and media in general can lead to this right and I would say it's not as direct that's more so where I was going with. It's not as direct. It's not like they're actually telling him to go kill. Now, granted, yeah, some things can be can be taken away. I mean, recently we had the the shooting in which there's like a relation to words from Tucker Carlson that are now being brought up that this could have had influence upon the subject. But yeah, I think that's I definitely see what you're saying because media media probably is the biggest influence, and media isn't even the one that was critiqued during this time. It was more so the the entertainment. The entertainment is what people thought was going to be leading these individuals to killing each other. But no, it's actually is more so the media that has the bigger influence. 
Yeah, so I think this film definitely is fascinating to look at from today's perspective. I don't know if I have it. I thought I had something. I was going somewhere with that, and then I kind of lost it. <laughs> no, we've, we've been talking about it a lot, of how this is just it's relevant today. It can still make topics that we can debate as well, like censorship, exposure, you know, influences. There's even a line in here, Professor Oblivion says that soon we will be going, everybody will be on TV screens and no one will have that interaction and they'll be hiding behind their own their own names and personas. And that's like social media right now. Oh, definitely. I feel like also this idea of just stimulation I thought was interesting as well from today's perspective. You know, this idea that you need that constant stimulation, you need something that's going to be more and more stimulating uh, is interesting because I feel like, you know, we always have these trends, you know, they're big for a little bit and then after a while it kind of gets old and then we need something else crazy to happen. And just also with the news cycle, uh, what captures our attention, something will be stimulating one day and then the next we need something more and more to capture our attention. Like I said, especially in internet culture because we're just constantly surrounded by things. Some of the things I found to be kind of relating in, in quotes, he says that it was an accident coming upon Videodrome, but it brings up the question, is it so much of an accident if you were looking for it? And there is the kind of question throughout the movie, like, is he hoping that Videodrome is real? If he, is he hoping that what he sees on screen is real? Is he truly messed up just for wanting to spectate something that is in his mind being acted? So something I was a little confused about you know, how Videodrome appeared to him. So would it appear to different people in different ways? Like, did it just appear to him as that, you know, kind of sexual torture porn video because he was looking for something like that? Like, if you're not looking for that, would it appear to you as something else? No, because I think, like, it may have different versions, but remember, they were going to distribute it to his... um to his audience. So it's people that would want to look at that certain thing. If it could just be anything that you want to see that's messed up, then everybody would be affected. But they were just going after the people who wanted to watch messed up things or in their mind, uh, disturbing grotesque images. But I mean, but that's their choice to show it to that particular audience. But obviously anyone could, could watch this if they showed it to them. But that's why I was wondering if maybe it would manifest as something else because i was a little confused about how that whole broadcast really played into video drum as a whole but then that's what i i was kind of thinking that okay like what if someone else watched this who wasn't really into that like would it be something else what well, wasn't even broadcast it was they produced the movies themselves so they they did the recordings and everything oh so video drum is a okay so this is where i maybe i lost hmm point of the thing so Videodrome was an actual recording yeah Videodrome was an actual recording so during the whole reveal of the antagonist they tell him is like yeah Videodrome never broadcasted we produced that we created that and then we presented it to you like a broadcast so you thought that you just came upon it kind of getting that that interest and also hiding their motives as well okay because I kind of I kind of took it I thought that Videodrome was more of an technological entity that oh. kind of manifested itself while they were doing some kind of work in in that i don't think i realized that they were specifically 
filming that particular like red room with the the actors that are or not actors but with the torture and all that yeah they were actually filming that and then for some reason that had an effect on people i think it's also they were recording his hallucinations so i'm wondering if those hallucinations like if the tapes are people's hallucinations and mm. they're given out because i'll also say like he was watching the video with nikki and they were seeing the same thing yeah but i think that that's something but it also interests her it intrigued her it was something that she liked yeah i think the taste itself like has a certain calling to certain people because she was going through and that one popped out at her mm, okay something about this film that i also noticed was just the set design I mean, I know you talked about some things that were hidden in the background, but just the the composition of the scenes in re- in how it played along with that set design, I thought was interesting. I think that Videodrome, the video, that set piece for the video, it was very minimal. There's not really much to that. It's just kind of a, a red wall. Um, but then when you look at the areas in, 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 I'll put in real life in quotes, there's definitely a sort of maximalism to the settings. You know, I think looking at his apartment, it's kind of disheveled. Uh, there's a lot going on. And I think a lot of the composition kind of made it seem this way even more so than just that the what was in it. I think too, like the office buildings, they just all felt kind of crowded and kind of a sense of maximalism. And I think that kind of lends itself to this idea of of uh, stimulation, that you're going to be overstimulated by the environment that you're, that the environment that you're in and, and what you surround yourself with also uh, is part of that stimulation. I, I, yeah, they, like I said, the sets they had also kind of just felt like they were of another world. They, they were interesting, something like we wouldn't see, but it definitely played into... The message as well yeah so definitely props to that set designer i'm not quite sure who that is i'd have to look it up but but props to them also going back to your theory of is it different for everybody i'll say no because the the one guy the the pirate the one that was mm-hmm. uh pirating the movies for those who haven't watched it don't, don't worry there's not a real pirate in there <laughs> with an eye patch and a wooden leg but without looking at the film and Max looking at it and he says, what's up with that clay wall? And without mm-hmm. looking at it, he says, yeah, it's probably like something I think is electrified because he has knowledge of it already. So yeah, even without, without looking at looking it, at he it. knows what he's looking at. So it, it already has to be concrete. Which that dude, I don't know his name, but I wasn't a fan of him. I didn't understand why he kept calling him Patron, like in this like Hispanic accent. Like it made me think that, you know, he was trying to say something else in Spanish, but... I don't know. He just kept calling him Patron. And I was like, why? Why do you keep doing this? <laughs> yeah, no idea. I don't know. It's like, you know, it's like some people have their, their names they like to call people. And sometimes they are of a different language, like compadre or compadre. comrade. I will say there is a, a lot of really good, like kind of one-off lines in this movie. You know, one of the ones I liked is that he said monologue is his preferred mode of conversation when they were talking yes. about Oblivion. Masha, a character in the film that we didn't really talk too much about, I know she was talking about Videodrome and its dangerous quality, and she said it has philosophy, and that's what makes it dangerous. I mean, the monologue can can fit with a lot of people right now. You have vlogs. Vlogs mm-hmm. are basically monologues, and I doubt everybody is open up to criticism and debate. You know, we usually 
we see both types of mediums. We do see the the debates that come up. I mean, we we do debates. We're not just doing monologues. Another one that I liked was it's better than on TV than in the streets, which is an argument that can be made, and I think it can be made for a for a better argument and for a worse argument. Yeah, I, I, I think that brings up some some interesting uh, topics and can be looked back at. Yeah, because like I said before, like I feel like the acting is a bit over the top in some areas and sometimes the dialogue isn't always natural and I think it works for this film. But there, like I said, there really was some really good lines in there. Oh, with the acting, uh, James Woods, I don't know if he put this in himself or if it was if he was directed to, but his character did possess a natural curiosity. Every room that he went into he was always touching and looking at things throughout the whole movie. And it just, it kind of gave him this, uh, it's kind of almost like a childlike behavior, just kind of curious of the world around him, which goes, which plays into, you know, somebody who is constantly looking for new things. Yeah, that really does fit. I'd be curious to know if that was his or director decision. Do you think that this movie holds up? I do. I feel like it, while some things are dated, obviously the VHF tapes we don't use anymore, you know, I'd be curious to see how a younger audience who maybe didn't grow up with that would take this film. But I think in general, like the messages of this, I think it holds up even more than it did then. I'm going to tell kids this is how we had to watch movies before we had to open up our stomachs and put in Betamaxes. <laughs> yeah, I think this does hold up really well. Like I said, this has a timeless message. Even we've been making relations between the message back then and then now and again we have cancel culture quote-unquote that can be related during this time as well as it's pretty interesting like this has just been a constant thing people think it's new but it's not and of course with practical effects usually practical effects if done well uh, of course here they were done well done by the great rick baker that holds up as well but this is a movie that i would like to see a retelling something a bit more modern I don't want to see it made by a studio because I feel like they would just use it as a gimmick. Mm -hmm. But I think if you get the right team behind this, this could be something pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. I feel like every time we've had movies that are, you know, critical of, of media of today, I feel like it kind of falls flat for me. I think the social network being an example of that. I think the social network is... Well, I mean, it's not even really making too much of a social commentary. It's more talking about the creation of Facebook and uh, you know, the the relationship between friends and, and business and also just the unique personalities and abrasive personalities. I think... Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that's why it falls flat because I think it could have had an opportunity to say something and it, it didn't really for me. Oh, uh, well, I think... I don't know. I don't think it would have been appropriate because they were talking about the first days of Facebook. So to make commentary about what social media is now, when you're talking about the beginning of social media, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have made sense. It wouldn't. Have I fit. mean, but you could have done something. You definitely could have had something in there. But instead, it was very much just this, this you know, arguments among rich people that I just didn't really care for. Maybe they'll make a sequel. Says social network, social commentary. <laughs> but I mean, I think that, you know, The Matrix kind of fell flat for me. We know this based on, you know, how I felt about that series. And I feel like just in general, I don't think we have, I'm trying to think of a movie that really serves as a good commentary on media. And I, I'm I'm 
drawing blanks at any? I would say two. One, uh, a lot of Black Mirror episodes, of course. Well, yeah, Black Mirror. But I feel like film-wise. Film-wise, I would say recently Ingrid Goes West. I have not seen that one. I would actually recommend it. I'm not a big fan of Aubrey Plaza's acting. (laughs) She's, She's not doing Aubrey Plaza acting in this. Okay. She's not doing that deadpan humor that she's known for. I mean, she's she definitely doing, can be a good actress, but when she's playing herself, I'm not a big fan of she's her. She's not. Yeah, actually, I would say, actually watch this because she's not playing herself. Also, Elizabeth Olsen, who I know you probably appreciate seeing outside of MCU as much as I do. Because I mean, we both liked her when we first saw her. Martha, Marcy, Marlene, Mary, May, Maxwell, Jean. <laughs> I mean, I liked her at Wind River, too, but I don't know. I feel yeah. like... Her attitude. I have personal things against her. Well, not personal, but I feel like she's, uh, she, her as a person, I'm not a big fan of. But I do think she's a good actress outside of the MCU. Yes. And there's some other good performances there. I'm trying to remember the name of the one dude. He was in Game Night and episode Black Mirror. And then you have Ice Cube's son as well. I'd say it's a good, and it's a good light film. If you're looking for something that has some social commentary, I'm not going to say it's the best in it. Is exemplary and, and puts everything into perspective, but it is a good comment. Okay. Yeah, it's a interesting story. But with this movie, what would you rate this movie? You know, like I said, the more I kind of delve into it, I think the more I like it. Because I, I don't know that I really would say that I liked it when I was watching it. But I like it more after the fact. There were definitely things that I enjoyed watching into it. Um, especially the body horror in it. But the plot, like I said, was... Not my favorite, I think. And like I said, I do think it dragged in the middle towards the end and towards the end. So I think for me, I'm going to give this a B. Same grade, I would give it. And this is a movie I have to say, like, the what, what you've been saying so far, I would say, if you ever had the chance, you know, if you get rid of me as a host and <laughs> you start your own podcast with somebody else and you do the same thing and they haven't seen Videodrome, then yeah, definitely hop on the opportunity to watch it a second time. I think you would enjoy it more. I know I did and I agree with a lot of things that you're saying, especially during that first watch. And I think when I first watched it, I think I would have given it uh given it a lower grade. But now seeing it, now talking about it, I'll say, yeah, this is a this is a B movie. Well not a B movie. It's a movie with a rating B. No, the effects are much better than a B movie. <laughs> or Definitely. the movie with uh, Seinfeld. Oh, that B movie. <laughs> Forgot about that one. I was like, what are you talking about? But yeah, like I said, it, it it's a good film. It's definitely a good film. I think it's my favorite so far, but I've seen it Cronenberg. Obviously, I've not seen that many. But there definitely has a couple faults in it that kind of brings it down for me. And it's not a film, like I said, I didn't enjoy watching it while I was watching it. Are you interested to see more of Cronenberg? Because we do have a couple that we're going to be watching. Um, no. <laughs> not even The Fly? Definitely not The Fly. So The Fly is actually, it's somewhat of a dreaded pick, or at least it was for a while. I think I'm a little bit more open to it now, actually. But just because, you know, I don't want, I, I'm a Jeff Goldblum fan. I'm a Jurassic Park girl. And seeing him all like that. It's just not something that is pleasing to my eye. <laughs> well, you get a lot of uh, good shots with him in the beginning. You get some good time. You'll you'll have some time if you're Jeff Goldblum mm. uh, until you know he starts to transform and then things can start getting a little weird. Yeah, a little bit. I do love Jeff Goldblum though. So I mean, I I am somewhat 
I wouldn't say excited, but I, I'm open to it. I'm, but I feel like Cronenberg for me, I don't think is ever going to be like a favorite director of mine. I don't dislike him. I mean, maybe I need to see some of his more recent things, some of his more dramas. Like I've been wanting to watch uh, Cosmospolis, but I don't know how good that did. I can't remember. Not too sure about that one. Mm. And I'm not, I'm a, I can't really say I'm a fan of Cronenberg. I have a lot of respect. I like his movies, the ones that I have seen, uh, even The Fly, uh, which probably works better for me because while you're looking at Jeff Goldblum and he slowly transforms, what I'm looking at is Gina Davis and she's beautiful throughout. <laughs> uh, so actually, we got a couple of Jeff Goldblum movies this year. We have two because we're going to be doing Invasion of the Body Snatchers and we're going to be doing uh, Jurassic Park. Oh, I didn't know he was in the Body Snatchers. Yep, he's pretty good at it. But yeah, Cronenberg is somebody that's, man, it's kind of like the Videodrome. You're you're curious. Like, man, what is what is what is Cronenberg about? Yeah, and I, I think he delivers. And I'm looking forward to watching more movies with him. I'm looking forward to watching Scanners. I still have not seen Scanners. I've seen, like, the big ending, like, what it's really known for, but I haven't seen the whole movie, which is probably why I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, I mean, I agree that there, I definitely have a respect for Cronenberg, and I think that he is a good director mostly but like i said at the beginning of this podcast i don't think this film is something that i would seek out he's also he has an acting credit he's in jason x little fun fact <laughs> and i think he was a stand-in at some point for his film for for woods i forget what the scene yes. was but so there's the scene where they have on this big vr helmet it looks like and which is to record your hallucinations. Now, the, a lot of the things that you see on the set uh, in this production was created by themselves, of course. Of course, th these are things that are not of this world, so they had to go out and make them themselves. They were worried that the helmet was going to electrocute them. So Cronenberg, I guess thinking like, hey, this is my idea. Also, I'm the director and I get in a lot of trouble if I fried you up. They're like, <laughs> let me put on the helmet. So he, he went in, stepped up, you know, like a good leader should, and he put on that helmet, worried of electrocution. Good for him. Some real good or, uh, body acting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good on him. But I definitely don't, like I said, I don't dislike Cronenberg at all. I understand why people like Cronenberg. I think that he did contribute so much to the horror genre and the film. But like I said, it's just, it's personal. It's just a personal taste. Caitlin, is there anything you want to say before we wrap up this mission? Nope. So guys, I hope that you enjoyed the show. If you do want to go ahead and reach out to us, let us know what you think. Give us your feedback. You can reach us on our social media, which is... You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at OpSilverScreen. On Facebook, we're at Operation Silver Screen, but Twitter and Instagram, once again, that's OpSilverScreen. You can also find us on our personal letterboxes if you want to see what we're watching throughout the week and see what we have to say about some other films. You can find Bryant at Swank Seal, that's capital S, capital S, and me at Coffee Spoon Kate, that's Coffee Spoon C-A-I-T. I also want to mention, if you haven't listened to it yet, we did recently, our last episode, uh, last Tuesday, we did our Kinetto Trilogy episode. And on that episode, we did have our special guests from the Casters Build podcast on there as a collab. And if you haven't already checked out their podcast, go ahead and do that and listen to our episode that we did over there with them at Casters Guild. Yes, and also go ahead and get prepped for our next assignment. 
in celebration of Pride Month, we are going to be doing a possible cult classic, but I'm a cheerleader. A movie that is not too well known, but from what I hear is a hitting gem. I have not seen it, nor has Caitlin, so we are looking forward to this movie. Go ahead, watch But I'm a Cheerleader, and then join us our, for our next assignment. Till then, I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. See you. Thank you.